Chapter Six of *The Empty Sack* by Basil King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Six. At the minute when Junior Collingham was laying before her husband a plan which would bring comparative wealth to the Follett family, a number of things were happening in and about New York. First, Lizzie Follett had dropped into a chair to think, an action rare with her. She generally thought as she whisked about her work but this problem called for concentration. Briefly, it was as to how to cook the supper without heat. The gas-man had just gone away, and the gas for the range had been cut off because she couldn't pay a bill of twenty-nine dollars and sixty-seven cents, or anything on account. This was Wednesday, and she would have no more money till the children got their various pay-envelopes on Saturday. Though in the back of her mind she blamed herself for an unwise distribution of the week's funds, it was one of those situations in which you blame yourself without seeing how you could have done otherwise. With six to feed, and all the subsidiary expenses of a family to meet, she had twenty-two dollars a week. Of his eighteen, Teddy gave her fifteen, three being needed for car fares and other small necessities. From the six she earned at the studio, Jenny contributed three. Gladys, who was now a cash girl on seven a week, was able to turn in four. Gussie brought nothing to the common fund as yet, for the reason that the three-fifty which Madame Corinne conceded for the privilege of a teaching her the millinery allowed no margin over what she had to spend. To Lizzie, during the past six months, life had become an exciting game. How to pay the minimum on every account, and yet keep alive her credit, had been the calculation with which she rose in the morning and lay down at night. It was a game that could be played successfully for two months, or three months, or four. When it came to six, the heaping up of unpaid balances made it harder to go on. It was making it impossible to go on. During the past fortnight she had found her credit stopped at three places in the square, where Pemberton Heights did its shopping. In vain she had tried to transfer her account elsewhere. But Pemberton Heights is no more than a huge village where the status of most families is known. More and more her small amount of cash was needed for cash purposes, in order that the family might live. Lizzie sat down to cast up her assets. She had the small remnants of a ham which could be eaten cold. She had bread and butter. If she could only make tea! She might have done that in a neighbour's house, but she shrank from exposing a situation which a lucky stroke might change. At the same moment Josiah was turning away from a wooden bar which shut off an office from the public. He had entered and stood there, meek, unobtrusive, trembling, while none of the young men or young women busy at desks or with one another paid him any attention. When a girl with hair combed over her ears, very bright eyes, and very short skirts, tripped by him accidentally, he managed to stammer out something in which she caught the word job. The word being significant, and Josiah's appearance more so, she whispered to a gentleman who left his desk and came forward. "'Now I'm very sorry we can't do anything for you.' He hadn't waited for the word job. He hadn't waited for Josiah to speak at all. He knew the situation so well that his method was to end it there and then. Josiah turned away meekly as he had entered, and with no sinking of the heart. His heart used to sink, but that was four and five months previously before he had exhausted his emotions. Now the bitterness of death was past. It had passed day by day and inch by inch, by stages of slow agony, leaving him with a dried soul that couldn't suffer any more. 
And also at this minute Teddy was standing in his cage at the bank in a very peculiar situation. At least it struck him as peculiar, because for the first time he perceived its opportunities. For Teddy, too, six months have been a period of development, just as it is for a green fruit when you pick it and lay it in the sun. It ripens, but it ripens green. When you eat it, it has a green flavour, or a flat flavour, or none at all. Teddy was a fruit to be left on the tree to take its time. He was now twenty-one, with the promptings of sixteen. At his own rate of progress he would probably have reached twenty by the time he was twenty-two, but thirty at twenty-five. As it was, he had been called on to be thirty when his growth was just beginning. Not merely the circumstances have made this demand in him, but the dependence, more or less unconscious, of the members of the family. They looked to him to do something big, because he was a young man. Having heard of other young men who had been financially heroic, they expected him to be the same. The possibilities, open to a bank clerk of twenty-one, had no relation to their hopes. Even his mother, chiefly because of her adoration, seemed to feel that he should spring from eighteen to a hundred dollars a week by the force of inner flame. She didn't say so, of course. She only revealed her sentiments as Pansy revealed hers, by an inextinguishable look. The father did no more than throw emphasis on the boy's responsibility. Jenny and Gladys never said anything at all. But Gussie was quite frank. "'A great big fellow like you and only making eighteen per. Look at poor Mamma working her fingers to the bone. I'd be ashamed if I were you. Why, Fred Ingalls orders his clothes at Love's and, and keeps his own Ford.' It was all there in a nutshell, his inability to rise to the occasion in a land where everyone else who was worth his salt had only to shake the money-tree and pick up coin. How Fred Ingalls did it, Teddy couldn't think, when your value by the week was so definitely fixed and a raise lay so far ahead. If he had developed during the past six months, it was mainly through a carking sense of inefficiency. Meanwhile, he had to do what Gussie told him, watch his mother work her fingers to the bone. In spite of a tendency to squabble, the Follets were an affectionate family, and the mother was the centre of their love. Teddy didn't stop to analyse what she was to them. He only knew that there was nothing he wouldn't be to her. If he could only have compassed it, she would have had a bar-pin like their neighbour, Mrs. Weatherby. She would have worn the skunk neckpiece for which he had once heard her utter a desire. She would have gone out in his ford oftener than Fred Ingle's mother in his. These things he would have done for her, and more— had he been but the financial titan all-American example had called on him to become. Between Gussie's taunts and his own, what lack I yet, he was reaching a condition of despair. And now, on this particular afternoon, when nearly everyone had left the bank, and Mr. Brunt, to whom he was specially attached, was working later than usual, there was the fruit of the money-tree piled up on the ground. Mr. Brunt had gone to the other end of the main office, and would return presently to stow these piles of bills in the safe. These bills were money. Teddy had never consciously dwelt on that fact before. He had been in this same situation a thousand times, when he had nothing to do but put out his hands and stuff his pockets with food and fuel and gas and the interest on the mortgage, and all the other things of which there was such a lack at home, and had never considered that the needed things were here. He remembered that as a child in Nova Scotia he would occasionally swipe an apple from a cartload, knowing that the owner couldn't miss it, and had the same sensation now. 
Here were the piles of bills, all arranged in rows according to their values, a pile of hundreds, a pile of fifties, a pile of twenties, and so on down. Mr. Bump would come back, as he had done at other times, and put them away without counting them. Having counted them already, he would accept this reckoning for the day. He, Teddy, was left there to see that nothing happened to this treasure. He was never able to tell how it came about. Without seemingly being able to control the action of his hand, he had slipped a twenty-dollar bill from the top of the pile into his own pocket. It was an instant's weakness, followed the next instant by repentance. Teddy knew what theft was. He had not, through his father, had so much to do with banks without being fully aware of the sure and pitiless punishment meted out to it. He didn't mean to steal. He was horror-stricken at the act. Quick as a flash, his hand went into his pocket again. But Mr. Brunt was back. The thing that could have been done at once had to be deferred. Looking for a chance to drop the bill to the floor and make restitution by picking it up, it was annoying that Mr. Brunt should give him none. Mr. Brunt seemed possessed by a demon of speed. So quickly had he locked all the piles in the safe, and then locked the cage behind him. Teddy found himself outside, with the bill still burning in his pocket. Even so, there were other possibilities. Going to the washroom, he hung on there till Mr. Brunt had gone home. The cage was made of open wirework. It was a simple thing to slip a bill through one of the interstices. It would be found next morning on the floor, and a fresh running over accounts would show where it belonged. Mr. Brunt would wonder how it came to be so careless, but with his balance straight he would be satisfied. But, as Teddy reached the cage, there was Doolan, the night watchman. Doolan was an ex-policeman, too old for public office, but equal to sounding an alarm in case the bank was being robbed. He was a friendly soul, and, in strolling up to Teddy, had no motive beyond asking about the old man and whether or not he'd yet found a job but Teddy suspected that he was being watched. He didn't know but that Doolan might have seen the movement of the hand which snatched the bill from the pile. When he stirred to go homeward, Doolan might clutch him by the neck. It was a strange, new sensation to feel that, within a minute, within a few seconds, the law might have its grip on him. Having said good-bye to Doolan and turned away, he took the first steps in expectation of a stern command to come back. It was another strange new sensation to be walking the familiar ways of Broad Street and Wall Street with this strange new consciousness. There were thousands of bright young men and women streaming to electrics, subways and ferries in the first stages of commuting, and among them he bore a secret mark. Tramping along in the crowd, he felt like a soldier marching with his comrades to the trenches, but knowing himself picked for death. Luckily his folly was not even now beyond reparation— he would get to the bank early in the morning, discover the cursed bill lying in some artfully chosen corner of the floor, and restore it to Mr. Brunt. All the same, it was a relief to get away from the fear of detection which he felt to be haunting the streets, by plunging into the moor of the subway, where his identity was swallowed up. At this minute, too, in the studio, Hubert Ray was leaning over Jenny Follett's shoulder, and placing before her a rough pencil sketch. "'Take it away!' "'Jenny cried tearfully. "'I don't want to look at it.' "'But, Jenny, I only wish you to see how little it involves.' "'It was a drawing of a nude woman, "'her hair coiled on the top of her head, "'sitting very upright in a marble Byzantine chair, "'her knees pressed together in the manner of the Egyptian cat goddess. 
On a level with her face, and poised on the tips of her fingers, she held a human skull which she inspected with slanting, mysterious eyes. Ray continued to keep the sketch before Jenny, hanging over her shoulder. He was so close that she felt his breath on her neck. He could easily have pressed his lips against her amber-coloured hair, and Jenny wished he would. But having long ago made up his mind that she could be best be won by a system of starving out, he refrained from doing it. As, however, she persisted in brushing the sketch aside, he straightened himself up. "'Then, Jenny, I'm afraid I can't use you any more. That is, for the present. Since you won't do it, I must get someone who will.' "'You could paint another kind of picture,' she argued indignantly, "'with me with clothes on.' "'You don't understand. I'm an artist. An artist doesn't paint the picture he chooses, but the one that's given him to paint.' "'No one gave you this to paint. It isn't a commission. It's just your own bad mind.' "'I'm not ready to explain what it is. You wouldn't understand. "'Something comes to you. You've got to obey it. "'This is the picture I've seen and which I'm obliged to do next. "'And besides, it isn't a bad mind, Jenny. "'The human form is the most—oh, you don't have to hand me out any hokum about the human form. "'It's all very well in its place. "'But you fellows are crazy, the way you stick it up where it doesn't belong.' "'Look at that picture of Simsies you were all so wild about. Three men walking in a field, and not a stitch between them. "'Who go out like that? There's no sense in it.' "'It isn't a question of sense, Jenny. It's one of business. "'If you want to be a model, you must be a model, and meet the demands of the market.' She wore the cheap linen suit that had been her best last summer, and the corresponding hat. But her beauty— being of the type which subordinates externals to itself, she was more than adorable. She was elegant. With tears still rolling down her cheeks, she pointed at the sketch Ray held in his hand as he stood before her at a distance. "'Do you know what my father would do if he thought I was going to be painted like that? He'd turn me out of doors.' Ray tossed the sketch on the table. "'Then, Jenny, there's no use talking of it any more. "'You're not that kind of model, and it's that kind of model I'm looking for.' "'I'm the kind of model you were looking for when you put that advertisement in the paper nearly a year ago. "'I answered it because you said a, a pretty girl, not a professional. "'Yes, that was a year ago. That's what I wanted then. "'But now it's something else. "'It doesn't follow that because you're satisfied with an egg for breakfast "'that an egg will be enough for every meal all the rest of your life.' She looked up reproachfully. "'Yes, all the rest of your life. That's the way you talk. Nothing will ever be enough for you all the rest of your life.' "'No, Jenny, nothing. Not as far as I see now.' "'And yet you expect me to stake everything?' "'You must choose your words there, Jenny. I don't expect you to do anything. There may have been a time when I hoped—but that's all over. We won't talk of it. You've made up your mind. I must make up mine.' nothing between us now but a question of business. I'm looking for a model who does this kind of thing, and it doesn't suit you to serve my turn. Well, that settles it, doesn't it? Our little account is paid up to date, and so—' She stumbled to her feet. The only form her resentment took was a trembling of the lip and the streaming of more tears. "'But what can I do?' "'Do you mean for a living?' As she nodded speechlessly, he smiled with a faint shrug of the shoulders. "'That's not for me to decide, is it, Jenny? Once you've left me—' "'I'm not leaving you. You're driving me away.' "'Suppose we said that life was separating us. Wouldn't that express it better? We've—we've we've liked each other. 
I've never made any secret of it on my side. Have I, Jenny? No, you're so terribly discreet on yours. And yet life... I've only been discreet about one thing. Well, that one thing is the whole business. And I wouldn't be discreet about that if there was any other way. There's the way I told you about. Yes, and be left high and dry after two or three years, neither one thing nor the other. Isn't that looking pretty far ahead? It's not looking farther ahead than a girl has to. It's easy enough to talk. There you'd be, able to walk off without a sign on you whereas I'd have to lie down and die, or, or find someone else. Well, there'd be that possibility, wouldn't there? That's not so difficult for a pretty girl to find when— She stamped her foot. I hate you! No, no, you don't, Jenny. You love me. Only you won't let yourself. And I never will, never, 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 not if I was starving in the streets, so help me God! She was running towards the model's exit when he called after her. "'Then you leave me to work with another woman, Jenny. "'Another woman sitting in your place. "'Another woman!' "'When she threw him a despairing glance, "'he snatched the sketch from the table and held it up to her. "'Another woman, dressed like that!' "'But out on the stairs she paused. "'Anger was giving place to fear. "'It was, first of all, a fear of the other woman dressed like that. "'And then it was a fear, not less agonising, of the loss of her six a week. Her six a week was all that stood between Jenny and the not very carefully veiled contempt of the family. In the testing to which the past half-year had subjected them all, Jenny had not made very good. Six a week had been her measure. For obscure reasons which none of them could fathom, she had proved incapable of really lucrative work. She had tried to get employment with other artists who would leave her free for her hours with Ray, but she had failed. She had failed, too, in stores, factories, offices, and dressmaking establishments. Perhaps they saw she was only half-hearted in her attempts. Perhaps her air of helplessness told against her. She was too much like a lady, had been one employer's verdict, and possibly that was true. Whatever the reason, she seemed a creature not primarily meant to work, but to be utilised in some other way. The question was, as to that way. "'You're splendid to love,' little Gladys had whispered one day, when Jenny was crying to herself, and much in her recent experience confirmed this opinion. In her applications for something to do, it had more than once been made plain to her that money could be made by other means than by punching a time-clock at seven. But she couldn't retrace her steps and go back to Ray. She thought of it, she had chosen to descend by the stairs instead of by the lift which served the huge studio building in order to give herself the chance of changing her mind. She went down a few steps and stood still, then a few more steps and stood still. If it had been only a question of the money, she might have swallowed her pride and returned to throw herself at his feet. But there was the other woman, dressed like that. He had dared to invoke her, well, let him invoke her, let him paint her, let him do anything he liked. She, Jenny, would break her heart over it, but it would be easier to break her heart than go back. And yet, not to go back made her feet like lead as she dragged herself down the interminable steps. End of chapter 6